Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Today's episode is brought to you by West Holm. We all know from home cooks to restaurant chefs to eating enthusiasts that the quality of your ingredients makes all the difference, especially when it comes to meat. West Holm, which is based in Queensland in the Northern Territory, Australia, is working with the land to create nature-led Australian Wagyu. They steward 16 million acres of rangeland, guided by the natural ecosystem where their cattle thrive. The result is high-quality Wagyu beef that reflects the terroir of Northern Australia and a flavor suited to complement any cuisine. West Holm believes that when nature leads, flavor follows. Learn more at westholm.com slash savor. That's W-E-S-T-H-O-L-M-E dot com slash saver. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X. And modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. iHeart 3D Audio. This episode is brought to you in iHeart 3D Audio. For maximum effect, headphones are recommended. Hello and welcome to Saber, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we have an episode for you about Skipjack Tuna. And it's a very special episode because it's Saber in 3D. <laughs> yes, um, we are pretty huge nerds about this, uh, about all of all of this surround sound audio technology that is um, happening in podcasting right now. And so when they asked if we wanted to do something with it, we said, yeah. Um, <laughs> and furthermore, we, we we landed on Skipjack Tuna, well, A, because I'm a foolish human and wasn't thinking about how <laughs> intensive the episode was going to be. Um, but B, uh, we realized that we have all of this amazing audio that we captured when we were in Hawaii, and that that can be processed into a 3D sound experience, and we wanted to bring you to Hawaii. Yes, we also wanted to bring us to Hawaii because we miss yes. it. But bo- bo- both of those things. <laughs> also, just amounts. to put in here, what did I do to deserve two marine creatures on this show <laughs> in a matter of weeks? It's fantastic. Oh, they're so weird. <laughs> the oceans yes. are strange places, you guys. Indeed. <laughs> um, and so, so right. So, so we're going to have a few um, of these 3D clips uh, interspersed throughout the episode, and um, uh, specifically the the audio that that Andrew, producer Andrew, wanted to pull was from the Poke Battle that we attended on Oahu, um, which we talked about extensively in our Hawaii mini series. Um, but as a, as a quick reminder, so. So there was, we went to this um, event, um, this poke battle event at a Foodland, um, which is a local grocery chain, which does have a poke deli counter. 
but but this in particular was like seven chefs battling for the crowd's favorite poke of the day, um, with the winner to receive uh, $5,000 to donate to a Hawaii charity of their choice. Um, this was the second annual one that we were attending in 2019. Um, unfortunately, they couldn't do one last year. And uh, right, we were ostensibly there to conduct an interview with uh, Denise and Roy Yamaguchi, uh, Denise being the CEO of the Hawaii Food and Wine Festival, among other things, um, Roy being a chef and restaurateur and a contestant. Um, but yeah, it was such glorious madness um, that Andrew and Dylan wound up just just hanging out, capturing a lot of sound. Yeah, it it was a it was a very memorable experience, and there was just so much going on. And I remember being shocked uh, that this was a an event at a grocery store, and people were so excited about it. There were just all these sounds happening, like bells ringing. <laughs> and and hundreds the, of people in these huge lines. Yes, exactly, exactly. And we were looking around like, well, we've got to go over there and record that sound. Like, we've got to go over <laughs> there and do, <laughs> and yeah, trying to conduct this interview. And it was just this lovely, lovely chaos. Yeah. So if you have headphones, get them on because uh, because here is our our first three uh, D audio clip from that event. And we're back into the world of 2D, although I don't know that that actually applies in audio, but uh, that's what we're going with. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Still working out the terminology. It's cool. Yes. Yes, it's just. I will say tuna is one of my very favorite foods. I know I said that in my random mismatch when Richard Blaze asked me when we were on food court. And he was like, what are your favorite foods? And I was like, it's peanut butter and tuna and kale, which is a very strange assortment. <laughs> um and that does make me feel torn a lot about the tuna because, the, yeah, there are a lot of issues around it. Interesting to me, I've never had tuna casserole or a tuna sandwich. You've which never I had a, a tuna sandwich? No. Um, I wonder if it was a mayo issue, but also I do think there was a lot of uh, judgment about, like, the smell of a tuna sandwich. Huh. At least where I, because I had a friend who really loved tuna sandwiches and she could never convince me to eat them. And I felt like it was just like not cool to eat a tuna sandwich. <laughs> it was one of my like childhood staples for sure. Um, All right. I still have a couple cans of tuna. I, I don't have anything to, and you don't have to mix it with mayo. You can mix it with, you know, like like yogurt or sour cream or something like that. But Okay. All right. Maybe I will uh, try it out. Uh, my friend who who ate the the tuna sandwiches when I was growing up, she's still one of my best friends, and she also always has a can of tuna on hand. Yeah, but a friend of mine in high school, she introduced me to sushi and sashimi, which I never had until then. Mm-hmm. And most of the stuff she picked for me to try was tuna based, and I just fell in love. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. I, oh, yeah, I love a tuna um, in all preparations, all the time. I prefer, I generally prefer it raw, generally prefer fish in its raw form. Um, but, but yeah, it's just, it's just tasty. Yeah. I also prefer it raw. And we've been, we've been lamenting about our poke cravings, which uh, won't be as satiated here, as satiated here as they were in Hawaii and to the level we now know exists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um there there just really is something about the freshness um and uh and and simplicity of preparation that you can get yeah, out there. Yes. Um mm-hmm. I, oh, I want to go back right now. <laughs> someday, Lauren, someday. Yes. And you can see our poke and fishing industry episodes from our Oahu mini series that we did for more about that and our experiences with that. Um, and also, you can see Lauren and I, uh, our 13 Days of Halloween episodes, which were done in this 3D audio, if you're really into this 3D audio thing. Yeah. 
And both of them are related to food-ish. They're like adjacent. You know? Yours is more directly related to food. Uh, mine is about guts, but mm-hmm. that that's that that is food related. Sure, yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> um, but all right, let's get to our question. Yes, skipjack tuna. What is it? Well, uh, the skipjack tuna is a small uh, kind of torpedo-shaped tuna. Um, There's some debate about whether it belongs in its own genus or not, but I've mostly seen it as its own genus, uh, Katsuwonis palamis. It's also called bonito, lesser tunny, victorfish, aku um, in Hawaiian, uh, katsu, and watermelon. That is quite a range of names. Uh... (laughs) Also, lesser tuning, get out of here. But at least there's Victor Fish to balance that out. <laughs> right, right. I like the two of them right next to each other. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I believe it's it's lesser in that it's a smaller version of other species and genuses of tuna. Um, uh, and watermelon comes in because of the patterning on their bellies. So um, these are smooth fish, not very scaly, with uh, silver bellies that are striped long ways with, uh, with black or gray. Hence the watermelon, yeah. Um, and then a dark blue, purple, black coloration along their upper backs. Um, like many birds, many fish develop light coloration on their bellies and dark coloration on their backs so that they blend in with the bright light of the surface or sky when you look up at them from below and then have a darker back to blend in with the um, uh, depths or the ground when you look down at them from above. They can grow a uh, skipjack tuna to be about uh, four feet long, a little bit over a meter, and weigh up to 70 pounds. They're typically less than half that more like a quarter of that, um, however. They hang out in the open ocean called the pelagic zone in tropical and subtropical parts of the Pacific, Atlantic, and Indian oceans and uh, migrate in schools of thousands of fellow skipjack plus big eye and yellowfin tuna. They'll even school with like sharks and whales. They're, they're, just, they're just buddies. They're just friends. Want to hang out. Um, their habitat around the globe forms a band sometimes called Tuna Alley. I just really like that. Um, yeah. They, uh, they hang around the surface during the day, but can dive uh, some 850 feet. That's 260 meters at night. They can partially regulate and thus conserve uh, body temperature in cool water. Tuna are predators in their ecosystems, and skipjack can eat up to a quarter of their own body weight every day in other animals. Um, pretty much whatever they can catch, up to and including other tuna. Tuna are cannibals. Yikes. Yep. So Tuna Alley is dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't want to don't 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 want to meet that tuna in a dark alley. No, no. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> uh sometimes they breed seasonally, but others will breed year round. Um female skipjack can produce and release eggs up to 2 million a year. Um and then males release sperm to fertilize them and uh then those eggs when once fertilized will hatch like within a day. They'll grow to maturity in about a year. Um, Left to their own devices, skipjack live about 7 to 12 years. It's caught by small and industrial fishers alike, using everything from uh, hand lines that catch a single fish at a time to these uh, purse seen, which is a type of large net that looks kind of like a purse, hence the name, uh, that capture whole schools at once. Um, Because it lives mid-water column, fishing it doesn't disturb the ocean bed, which is environmentally good. Um, Bycatch can be a problem with those purse seen um, especially when used with objects that are meant to attract like lots of fish, but that is regulated. Um, and although it is very heavily fished, it's not considered overfished. Um, that's definitely being monitored, and it's always kind of a situation where it's like, well, it's not being overfished right up until it is. And so watching out for that line can be difficult. Uh, populations in the Atlantic have been on the decline, but currently seem stable in the Pacific. And overfishing of larger species of tuna is actually kind of helping because there's less predation from those overfished species. So, ugh. <laughs> Ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're a food show. <laughs> Purportedly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the meat of skipjack tuna is um, this deep scarlet red and slightly translucent when it's raw. It's just, it looks like little gemstones when it's cut into little poke cubes. Goodness. Um, it, it cooks down to like an opaque light gray. Um, it's firm and distinctly tuna-y. It's, it's the strongest tasting of the tuna, um, especially when cooked. 
And its flavor is uh, savory and meaty and uh, fishy and a little briny when it's raw and then takes on, yeah, more of a fishy flavor when cooked. It is often canned um, and sometimes labeled as light tuna. I don't think that has anything to do with like the fat content or caloric content, but rather the color of the tuna. Um, it can also, yeah, be eaten uh, fresh, either raw or cooked in a variety of ways, or dried, um, eaten as a sort of uh, jerky or used as a seasoning. Um, the roe are eaten too. And uh, uh, although most of this is talking about like like steaks of tuna, um, the, the bones and surrounding meat are also used primarily in cuisines where they're caught, um, either uh, grilled or, or used in soups and stews, all kinds of things. Right. And that was honestly a surprise to me researching this is that whole like light tuna thing. I didn't realize that the same tuna that is in poke is the, yes, can. Yeah. Tuna. <laughs> no idea, but it is very much so. Uh, it, it is, we're, we're about to get into the numbers in a second. Um, it, it was a, it, it was a total surprise to me. Absolutely. Well, what about the nutrition? Well, it uh, depends on how you prepare it, but skipjack tuna unto itself is pretty good for you. It's a very lean protein, so um, it'll fill you up and help keep you going. Pair it with the vegetable and a little bit more fat for more staying power. Um, mercury and other contaminants in fish is still a whole other episode unto itself. But skipjack, uh, being smaller and younger when they're caught than other species of tuna, do tend to be lower in contaminants. So we do have some numbers for you. Oh, gosh, we do. Okay, yes. So of the 15 types of tuna, skipjack is the smallest, as in size, commercially mm -hmm. exploited variety and the most abundant. Because it's so small, um, even though it's fished the most, its total market value is about the same as uh, the larger yellowfin tuna, which is fished like half as much. Right. People's love of skipjack tuna has increased over the last several decades, especially, I mean, in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, about 300,000 metric tons were caught in 1950. In 1991, that number was 1,674,970 metric tons. Oof. Yep. Oof. These days, skipjack tuna, um, they make up about 40% of world consumption of tuna. Americans account for about 400,000 metric tons across all species of tuna annually. In 2018, half of the almost 7 million ton global harvest of tuna and similar species was skipjack. Yeah, some numbers put skipjack as high as being 60% of all legally caught tuna. Um, and 95% of it goes to canned tuna. Right. Uh, yeah, and most estimates suggest that 60% of all canned tuna in the U.S. is skipjack. From 1950 to 2000, the most popular seafood in the U.S. was tuna, which surprised me was shrimp. We need to return to shrimp one day. Oh, I, yeah. Huh. I have questions. Okay. Um, yes, um, but yeah, most of this tuna eaten from a can at the height of canned tuna's popularity, 85% of American households kept at least one can in stock. Today, though, Europe has the largest share of the global market of canned tuna, um, over 40% as of 2019. Uh, that same year, the global market for canned tuna was worth $8.2 billion. Dang. <laughs> However... Since 2000, demand for canned tuna has been steadily dropping due to concerns around mercury poisoning, dolphin bycatch, rising price, and pivoting interest towards fresh. While the American demand for canned tuna has decreased, even with COVID-19 stockpiling, products like tuna in a bag, perhaps to appeal to people who don't own can openers, um, has been, they have been introduced in a variety of flavors for example, Starkist offers bacon ranch, spicy Korean, among at least 17 other flavors. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. huh. Bacon ranch tuna? I know. <laughs> questions. Many questions. Many. Well, it's sure. Okay. According to an article from Hakai magazine, possibly Hakai, um, the skipjack tuna caught in just the western central Pacific in just 2018, if you took all those fish and you lined them up nose to tail, they would circle the planet 12 times. 
Wow. That means, to put it another bizarre way, um, according to this article, uh, if you could lie them in a straight line uh, all the way up into space, uh, they would touch the moon and then stretch another 80,000 kilometers past it. (laughs) I don't know why you would do that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what we could do with this Tower of Tuna. It's it's like a space elevator, but it's just fish. Um, I mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not entirely sure why. It sounds like a bizarre thing that they would have you do in like Katamari Damacy, like in some kind of oh, side yeah. side level. But yeah, that's a lot of tuna. <laughs> yeah, the point there being a lot. <laughs> And we do have quite a lot of history for you. We do, but first, we've got a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Glow with your best skin. Be confident in your skin. Be brave in your skin. With Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash, cover your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. Olay Body is a proud sponsor and supporter of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride, raising funds and support for the LGBTQ plus community. Olay Body wants you to feel empowered to live with confidence in your own skin, not just all month, but all year long. And when you feel the best in your skin, you can do anything. So this pride glow with confidence with the help of Olay Body. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Happy Pride! Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. We've talked in a bunch of different episodes about facets of Puerto Rican cuisine, um, like the dish mofongo, made of savory, deep-fried mashed plantains studded with some kind of tasty protein, and the creation of the cool, creamy pina colada. But there is so much more there. Um, I've actually never been. You have a tiny bit of experience, don't you? Yes. Unfortunately, it was a very tiny bit of experience. Mm -hmm. I was there for about a day. I'm kicking myself for that now. I remember having delicious rums, delicious drinks, but I want to go back because, yeah, so many episodes we do on here when we're talking about food from Puerto Rico, I want that. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it sounds amazing. We're trying to get a savor team trip together. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I mean, we're we're trying to get a trip to a lot of places, but this is this is really top of the list. Even putting together this ad read made me hungry. I was like, oh, oh, I want to try those things. Yeah, as we've talked about before, there are influences there from African and Spanish and native Taino foodways. The culinary scene sounds amazing, and we want to go, and I'm hungry. No me passport too. is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. You can learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Westholm. I'm a person who doesn't really cook with a lot of meat, to be honest, because when I do, I want it to be special. I'm the same, and I do love sharing that food with people. And I have to say, we received some product, some steak, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I am very eager to share it with my friends. Yeah, uh, West Home sent us uh, a few of their products, and they included these gorgeous, gigantic tomahawk steaks that I, like, opened the box and immediately sent a picture to my best grilling friend, like, hang out soon. Yes, I did too. (laughs) West Home offers these beautifully marbled steaks because they have 16 million acres of rangeland across the northeast corner of Australia, from Brisbane to Darwin. They use a nature-led approach with the belief that if they balance the needs of their cattle with the needs of their environment, both can thrive. Their cattle graze on native grasses like Mitchell grass, which is found only in Australia, and roam wild, foraging at will for the first two to three years of their lives. 
The result is Wagyu beef that reflects the terroir of northern Australia and a quality that would complement whatever you're into cooking right now. Westholm believes that when nature leads, flavor follows. Learn more at westholm.com slash savor. That's W-E-S-T-H-O-L-M-E dot com slash savor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So, humans that live near bodies of water have been eating fish for just about forever. Yeah. Some researchers theorize that our ancestors were eating fish and shellfish two million years ago. They're tasty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Again, kind of like with blue crab, I couldn't find many specifics of skipjack tuna's Mm -hmm. evolution and role in the human diet. But I, you know, a long time, I would say. (laughs) Uh Yeah. Skipjack tuna has played a vital role in foundational dishes in some regions like Japan, where records show it was served in the 3rd century uh, CE at the Yamato Imperial Court. Tuna is a key ingredient in some versions of the Japanese soup stock dashi, as well as dried bonito. Which are definitely other episodes. I was about to say probably, as though I had not already done all the reading for this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and decided that that was a different episode. Right, right. But very, very briefly. Yeah, yeah. Um, some of the very first records of precursors to Bonito in Japan date back to the 718 CE Yoro Code, which described a similar item as, quote, seasoning made from fish that has been boiled and dried hard. The first records of smoke-dried Bonito surfaced in 1674. A well-known legend posits that this was sort of an accidental discovery of a fisherman who was shipwrecked and decided to smoke some skipjack tuna over a wood fire and found the taste much improved. Hmm. In 1770, some people figured out that smoke-dried skipjack tuna could be even further improved by growing mold on it. The popular story behind this one is that it was also an accidental discovery, uh, perhaps after a merchant's product of skipjack molded during shipment or a wholesaler hesitated to throw out molded skipjack tuna. But yes, future episode. Mm -hmm. Skipjack was so plentiful in the waters around Japan that for a long time it was viewed as a, quote, common fish. In the 1100s, a monk wrote that the poor tossed out the heads of skipjack, I guess implying that. Even the poor. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, However, that perception shifted by the 1600s to 1800s, somewhere in there, when the skipjack tuna was prized and highly sought after in Japan. The so-called first catch, or hatsugatsuo, in late spring or early summer was the creme de la creme. That is what you wanted. There was even a saying, quote, I'd be willing to pawn my wife for a taste of hatsugatsuo. Wow. Yikes. Yeah. (laughs) Indigenous Hawaiians commonly ate the skipjack tuna or aku whole, raw, dried, or cooked. And there are a bunch of Hawaiian legends involving aku. Um, In one, a chief and his people, while first traveling to the islands by canoe, um, were caught in a storm, but saved by a school of aku that calmed the waters around them, and that therefore, for a few days a year, eating aku was prohibited. Now let's talk briefly about Maryland State Boat, the skipjack. (laughs) (laughs) And side note, Maryland, you've got a lot of official state symbols. (laughs) Although I did look it up, 17 other states have a state boat, so I, you know. Not that uncommon, sure, yeah. Yeah, but you got a dinosaur and a boat, you got a crustacean, I don't know, you got a lot going on, good for you. But this boat was first recorded in Maryland in the 19th century, and it was a motorless boat used for dredging oysters. It's still used in the Chesapeake Bay to this day because of restrictions oyster fisheries have around powered boats. Maryland designated it the state boat in 1985. Okay, yeah. Um, Yeah, but yes, a food show. The skipjack tuna and skipjack mackerel and skipjack herring, perhaps, um, with their reputation for speed, are believed to be the inspiration behind the name of this boat. Okay. According to a story collected by Jack Twilosega, 
and apologies if I'm mispronouncing that, um, passed on to him by his father, there's an American Samoan legend about the origins of a type of skipjack tuna with a round hole in its belly. And the legend goes as follows, quote, In ancient times, there was a magic fish hook that fish are attracted to. It would catch any fish. This fish hook was granted to a man in Fiji, and it was stolen by two demigods. They brought it to Samoa, and it again got stolen, and it was given as a gift to a woman called Sina. Sina gave it to her son, Kaokugu, but it got lost. So Sina went out looking for the hook and left her son while the boy was left on shore in Savai. When Sina found the hook again, she brought it back to her son. She swam all the way in, went into the creek where the rock is, and couldn't find her son. She thought the son had drowned and died. She was so heartbroken that she died. Ah! I know! Her son was just mucking around in the ocean. (laughs) The son came back and found the mother and the hook. He was also heartbroken, and he committed the tuna to pay tribute to the mother. So every so often, a special tuna will roll around where the rock is, and it leads the tuna. Now, I never heard of this, this tuna with the hole in it. Um, No. Gotta love a good legend. Uh, Yeah. There, there, there are a lot of legends around special fish hooks. I think with the skipjack, That's true. I, I, I ran into a couple others, and I and I couldn't quite get a handle on what they were trying to put forth. And I, I eventually just gave up. I was just like, "Well, mysteries, mysteries, history. Another day, another day. We're another a food day. show." It's true. It's true. Moana's got a the Disney movie. <laughs> Uh, has a magic hook, but it's been a while since I've seen that, so I can't add anything more than that. I just know there's <laughs> fish hook involved. Uh, the first records of skipjack tuna off the western coast of Australia popped up in 1945. But now let's talk for a second about the rise of canned tuna in the U.S., something that was really precipitated by the collapse of California's offshore sardine fisheries. And that sentence makes me want to do an episode on sardines immediately. Right? But, me too. Gosh. Okay, but please go ahead. Okay. So these people in this business, in this industry, were looking for a replacement for these sardines. So fishers pivoted towards other species of fish— First, albacore tuna, and then to more abundant species like yellowfin and skipjack. Most Americans at the time did not eat fish, and what fish they did eat was mostly salmon. Or Even if they did eat fish, they didn't eat much fish. Mm -hmm. On top of that, tuna was considered a trash fish. Pardon me. I know! Uh, But this didn't deter a sardine packer out of San Diego, or that is who is often credited with being the first to switch from sardines to albacore in 1903. The first tuna cannery in that city, San Diego, opened in 1911. According to a blog post on the San Diego Food System Alliance website, quote, in the ensuing half century, the city would earn its title as the tuna capital of the world. By the 1960s, San Diego's third largest industry would be tuna, preceded only by the Navy and aerospace. (laughs) Catching, canning, and marketing of tuna would employ up to 40,000 San Diegans. Um, And yeah, not all of that tuna was skipjack, but still, a lot of this burgeoning American tuna industry was informed by the influx of Japanese and Portuguese immigrants in that area. In the 1950s, most commercial tuna harvesting moved from a bait-and-hook model to, yes, this mechanized purse-sign method. And this did lead to increased product and increased profits. Americans liked canned tuna for several reasons. It was viewed as a cheap, healthy, filling, mild protein, the chicken of the sea, (laughs) as the marketing goes, to reassure Americans leery of that fishy taste. By the 1950s, the worldwide catch was around 660,000 Tons. A 1978 report from the National Marine Fisheries Service, or the NMFS, stated consumers' acceptance of canned tuna soon led to the development of fishing fleets in both San Diego and San Pedro. San Diego became the major base for the fleet, a position it continues to hold through 1978. Tuna passed salmon as America's most popular seafood choice in 1950. 
It's estimated that prior to 1970, 99% of tuna eaten in the United States was canned tuna. Wow. Right? Ah, this is yes. this is something I again, I had no clue about. I suppose I could have guessed due to, you know, the way that the way that industrial chilling and freezing and shipping has developed over the past, you know, 70 years, but goodness my gracious. Goodness my gracious indeed. I mean, 99%. And this availability of canned tuna allowed space for several dishes to be created, including tuna salad. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, meat, often ham, lobster, and or chicken, and mayonnaise-based salads were popular in the American colonies from the get-go, particularly among German immigrants. Also a separate episode. Mm-hmm. But for our purposes, these salads would um, often get additions of scraps about to go to waste, like celery, and then served on lettuce, which makes me laugh because, again, the word salad and all that it can entail is hilarious to me. <laughs> it's, it's honestly very upsetting when you're just trying to Google stuff. It's true. Or when you're trying to order from a menu and the menu is not extremely clear. Yes, but I love that there was this like meat mayonnaise salad served, served on, on lettuce. lettuce. Yeah. <laughs> salad on salad. Salad's all the way down. Oh, yeah. I love good salad. Uh-huh. As more and more women started spending time in the public sphere at museums and restaurants toward the end of the 1800s, some restaurants revamped their menus with women in mind uh, for ladies' lunches or luncheons, which I didn't deep dive this, but according to like a really superficial skimming of uh, websites, Luncheon is legit just a more elegant word for lunch that was given to women. <laughs> huh. Um, yeah. I don't know for sure if that's true, but maybe we'll return to that in yeah. a future episode. But yeah, these restaurants wanted to offer things that women ate at home, like these salads, um, though made fresh as opposed to with scraps. And often these were fish, again, usually salmon, or shellfish salads, And as more women started working in offices with limited lunch hours, restaurants started serving these salads between bread for something quick and convenient. The tuna didn't enter the mix until the 20th century with the debut of canned tuna. By the 1930s and 40s, American cookbooks might suggest tuna salad as an alternative to chicken or turkey. From a 1913 edition of the Christian Science Monitor, quote, In California, the tuna is being introduced generally in the best restaurants, not only because it is new, but because people are beginning to value it for what it is. Tuna salads are getting to be popular. The housekeeper can prepare the fish in a dozen different ways. All right. (laughs) True. It's all true. Sure. Yeah. Um, from Laura Shapiro's book, Perfection Salad, these salads were for women who, quote, wanted a career and needed a cause, but they weren't interested in breaking very many rules, reordering society, or challenging men on their own turf. What they really wanted was access to the modern world, the world of science, technology, and rationality, and they believed the best way for women to gain that access was to recreate man's world in woman's sphere. I want to read that book, I got to say. Yeah, and I think I, I think we talked about it in our Aspics episode. I think we did. I think yeah. we did. And now let's talk about tuna casserole, uh, which, again, I've never had, but I knew about because my mom made chicken casserole. Right. And after I left, she told me that they made it with tuna and that she never used tuna because she didn't think her kids would like it. Oh, Huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. But so, at its core, this is a mixture of canned tuna, cream of mushroom soup, and noodles. Uh, and this was another recipe thought up in the U.S. after the introduction of canned tuna. The first recorded recipe came out of Washington State in 1930. This first recipe used a white sauce, um, but after cream of mushroom soup came out, Most recipes used that instead beginning in 1934. During World War II, tuna casserole became popular in Australia thanks to shortages often supplemented by canned foods. 
Local versions made after the war frequently used homemade white sauce and sometimes skipped out on the noodles entirely. Huh. I would love to hear from Australian listeners about this because yeah. from what I read, it seems like it's still popular. Huh. I, yeah. you know, um, I, I think that, yeah, tuna noodle casserole is, isn't unpopular in the United States. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not something I have a lot of personal experience with either. Uh, my, my parents didn't make it for me when I was growing up. And so I never really acquired a taste for it. Um, but let us know listeners. Yeah. Yes. Skipjack tuna, or aku in this case, accounted for 60% of the commercial fish landings in Hawaii in 1960, still primarily caught using the pole and line method. By 1990, that number dropped to 4.5%. And part of this drop had to do with what some call a collapse in the production of U.S. canned tuna. The cannery Hawaiian tuna packers closed in 1984. In 1963, synopses of technical and biological data for skipjack tuna were compiled for the Pacific, Indian, and Atlantic Oceans, as well as the Mediterranean Sea for the UN's Food and Agricultural Organization, the FAO, sponsored event that they were having, the World Scientific Meeting on the Biology of Tunas and Related Species. Always have the most succinct names. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's to the point, though. All right. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, um, it was the arrival of increasing numbers of Japanese tourists to Hawaii in the 1970s that uh, played a major role in making tuna the protein of choice for poke. And that, in turn, would lead to changes in how the entire fishing industry works in Hawaii. Um, because as technology advanced, and thanks to the increasing popularity of tuna, um, handline fishing, which is this method of deep-sea fishing that goes back to ancient Hawaiians, um, became a commercially important method in the 1970s. Um, it's environmentally valuable because it lets you catch just specifically the fish that you want without bycatch. Because you're, yeah, just dropping that vertical line down into the water catching a single fish on that line and pulling it up either manually or mechanically. Yes. And you can, again, see the episode we did in our Oahu miniseries on um, the fishing industry in Hawaii. But speaking of, perhaps it's time for another 3D clip. Yes. And welcome, once again, back to the world of 2D. Not as exciting as the poke battle. Fewer fewer bells. (laughs) Yes. A little bit less crowded, sort of calmer. Right, right. But a fond memory nonetheless. (laughs) Mm -hmm. As the popularity of canned tuna grew in the U.S., fisheries had to bolster their supply with imports from Japan, South Korea, and Thailand. In 1990, the International Trade Commission estimated Americans accounted for one-third of all tuna consumption and half to two-thirds of canned tuna consumption. Hmm. Soon after that, as health and environmental concerns around tuna filtered to the American public at large, those numbers started to drop. After reports of dolphins dying as a result of the tuna industry in the 1980s, some consumers started boycotting the canned stuff, and to assure the public, some companies started selling, quote, dolphin-safe tuna in the 90s. Uh, Yeah, I remember those. Goodness. Um, Catches of all tuna species uh, globally peaked in 2014. And this is outside the scope of this episode, but I was curious about the history of eating fish in the United States, because I feel like for a long time in my neck of the woods, which if you've somehow missed it, is small town Georgia. Um, And not coastal Georgia, like interior Georgia. Yeah, exactly. Um, People didn't like fish. Uh, Usually they would say something about the smell as why they didn't like it. And then I feel like it became a health thing and it was really in vogue. And now it's much more popular. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is all anecdotal. This is just my experience. 
I generally liked it from a young age because my mom did grow up with access to waters and she did fish and crab. But I also avoided tuna sandwiches because I thought I'd be made fun of, like I said. And I I did look it up. And of course, people have researched this. Mm -hmm. Some of the first commercial industries in the U.S. colonies were fish industries. But fish wasn't necessarily held in the highest esteem, partly because of the settlers. Uh, you know, they were mostly Protestants um, or otherwise not Catholic. And mm-hmm. that was kind of like famously what they said uh, they were. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and seafood, which could be eaten on religious days uh, that prohibited the eating of meat in the Catholic religion, that meant it was associated with Catholicism. Seafood was associated yeah. with Catholicism. Sure. Um, Through various waves of immigration, popularizing fish, and a push during the World Wars to eat fish instead of meat, and therefore associating fish as a food for victory, Americans' attitudes toward fish did change. However, once the wars ended, it was seen as more of this food of sacrifice. It wasn't until the 1970s and 80s when Japanese immigrants introduced sushi to the mainstream that Americans decided... Fish was once again (laughs) worth eating. (laughs) For comparison, at its peak, annual American seafood consumption has only reached about 15 pounds a person, which is very recent, I believe, compared to about 200 pounds of beef, chicken, turkey, lamb, and pork. The U.S. is still the second largest consumer of seafood in the world, behind China and before Japan, Some speculate more modern reasons for Americans' low rate of fish consumption has to do with mixed and often confusing messaging around sustainability and health. So, yes, that's a whole, it could be a whole different episode, but I was just curious about kind of the ups and downs of the ebb and flow there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, No, and and that's super interesting. Um, I, I guess I... It's, it's it's strange to hear that because uh, to me seafood is like fancier than most other types of proteins. Um, it's sort of like yeah. special occasion. Um, even even something like I don't know, like I, I didn't grow up eating stuff like a like catfish at home, but like to me, if I see it on the menu, I'm like ooh. And I know that other people are like, that's a trash fish. Like, that's a bottom feed, right. and it tastes like mud. But I'm like, no, oh, fancy day, catfish. Oh man. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good point because I know I've said, especially in the Red Lobster episode, that was our fancy restaurant. But almost all of us got shrimp. That yeah. was the seafood. The seafood. Got. Right. Yeah. Right. But fish. fish was too fishy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, anyway, so many paths we could follow from this episode. Yes. Yes. But for now. That is what we have to say about the Skipjack tuna. It is. Um, And we do have some listener mail for you. But first, we've got one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. Glow with your best skin. Be confident in your skin. Be brave in your skin. With Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash, cover your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. Olay Body is a proud sponsor and supporter of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride, raising funds and support for the LGBTQ plus community. Olay Body wants you to feel empowered to live with confidence in your own skin, not just all month, but all year long. And when you feel the best in your skin, you can do anything. So this pride glow with confidence with the help of Olay Body. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Happy Pride! Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. We've talked in a bunch of different episodes about facets of Puerto Rican cuisine, um, like the dish mofongo, made of savory, deep-fried mashed plantains studded with some kind of tasty protein, and the creation of the cool, creamy pina colada. But there is so much more there. Um, I've actually never been. You have a tiny bit of experience, don't you? Yes. Unfortunately, it was a very tiny bit of experience. Mm -hmm. I was there for about a day. I'm kicking myself for that now. I remember having delicious rums, delicious drinks. 
But I want to go back because, yeah, so many episodes we do on here, when we're talking about food from Puerto Rico, I want that. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it sounds amazing. We're trying to get a savor team trip together. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, we're we're trying to get a trip to a lot of places, but this is yeah. this is really top of the list. Even putting together this ad read made me hungry. I was like, oh, oh, I want to try those things. Yeah, as we've talked about before, there are influences there from African and Spanish and native Taino foodways. The culinary scene sounds amazing, and we want to go. And I'm hungry. No me passport too. is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. You can learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Westholm. I'm a person who doesn't really cook with a lot of meat, to be honest, because when I do, I want it to be special. I'm the same, and I do love sharing that food with people. And I have to say, we received some product, some steak, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I am very eager to share it with my friends. Yeah, uh, Westholm sent us uh, a few of their products, and they included these gorgeous, gigantic tomahawk steaks that I, like, opened the box and immediately sent a picture to my best grilling friend, like, hang out soon. Yes, I did too. (laughs) Westholm offers these beautifully marbled steaks because they have 16 million acres of rangeland across the northeast corner of Australia, from Brisbane to Darwin. They use a nature-led approach with the belief that if they balance the needs of their cattle with the needs of their environment, both can thrive. Their cattle graze on native grasses like Mitchell grass, which is found only in Australia, and roam wild, foraging at will for the first two to three years of their lives. The result is Wagyu beef that reflects the terroir of northern Australia and a quality that would complement whatever you're into cooking right now. Westholm believes that when nature leads, flavor follows. Learn more at westholme.com slash savor. That's W-E-S-T-H-O-L-M-E dot com slash savor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back with Mel. I'm interested to hear how that one turned out. <laughs> I, I really like went with it motion wise and got pretty far away from the microphone. So yeah, and I and I wasn't I my. <laughs> My internet connection did the thing where it was like, oh, man, Lauren's making noise. I'm just going to cut off Annie's audio. So in the middle of it, I was like, I don't know where your voice is going. That's it's pretty cool. Pretty it's cool. always an adventure. Technology, so, y'all. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, Bob Root, when Annie said she'd never tried root beer, I felt shocked. Like <laughs> Lauren, I grew up on the stuff and love it. It's definitely my favorite soda. However, living in China all these years, it has been difficult insofar as root beer is a rarity here. The Chinese seem to hate it. (laughs) You asked for info from overseas listeners on the subject, so here you go. Anytime I found it and offered them a taste, they have all, save one individual, hated it. The claim being that it tastes like Chinese medicine. What's worse is when I was living in Macau and working with other pilots from all over the globe, they all seemed to think the same. I couldn't believe my ears. Root beer is great. (laughs) Living in Macau and Zhuhai, it was not so bad. I could often go across the river to Hong Kong and bring some home from there. I was so happy when I found IBC there, but was perfectly happy with hires our A and W. For many years since moving north to Beijing, I've only been able to get root beer on trips home. But now in the same week that I heard your episode, just days before, in fact, I was able to order some packets of DIY A&W root beer mix, and it's great. I'm so happy. I just carbonate a bottle of cold water with my soda stream type device, then add two packets of the mix, and voila, I have A&W root beer, and I'm so happy. It's sugar-free to boot. Yay! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> this is great. This is like a much larger scale version 
of our regional things that we talk in the U.S. Yeah. From people in different parts of the world about root beer and their <laughs> thoughts about root beer. But I'm very happy you're able to make your own. If you can't find it, at least you can make it. Yes. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rachel wrote, I don't really have insight into why pork broth isn't more popular in the U.S., but I work for a food manufacturer, and many years ago, we used to make what I referred to as the unholy trinity of ham, clam, and pork stocks. Many of our products are kosher, so I suspect the reason we no longer make them is the amount of effort it took to keep these separated and to properly clean all of the blending, processing, and packaging equipment after. The other thing that may or may not contribute to their rarity is the flavor of the product we were making. I don't think I ever tasted the ham. Uh, The clam tasted how you would expect clam stock to taste. But the pork, pork stock of the Brandon formula that we made, tasted exactly like burnt popcorn. I have no idea why, and it wasn't a bad flavor, just very, very strange. Huh. That's very, very strange. That is. Burnt popcorn broth is <laughs> a confusing <laughs> phrase it is it is <laughs> that reminds me this is such a specific story but once i asked for soup uh i was like nine years old and i asked for soup mm-hmm. and my dad was very tired and it was probably 10 p.m mm-hmm. and he was like really frustrated and he's like okay and he gets out a can of campbell soup and he opens it up and he pours it into our big bowl of burnt, it was popcorn, but it was just like the burnt corn kernels oh. at the bottom that was left. And he poured it in there and he handed it to, he handed it to me. And I looked at it and I was like, what? And then he looked down and he was like, don't tell your mother about this. <laughs> He's just on autopilot, I guess. Oh, did you eat it anyway? <laughs> I think I did. (laughs) We'll just put this in another bowl, heat it up. It's going to be fine. I love burnt popcorn. (laughs) Oh, goodness. (laughs) Yes. Well, anyway, um, thanks to both of those listeners for writing. Um, We do want to say we have one more very special 3D clip for this very, very special 3D episode. Um, and And stay tuned. After the credits roll. This is like an MCU post-movie credit scene. (laughs) Ooh, awesome. So, yes, yes. Uh, Stay stay tuned and and immerse yourselves back in that hectic and wonderful Poke Battle scene. Yes, please do that. It is a delight. We think you'll love it. And also, if you would like to contact us, you can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at SaverPod, and we do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things in 3D are coming your way. was brought to you in iHeart3D Audio. To experience more podcasts like this, search for iHeart3D Audio in the iHeartRadio app. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is home to a thriving culinary scene based on products and traditions from the native Taino, African, and Spanish peoples that have influenced it. 
When you go, there are a host of restaurants, bars, breweries, distilleries, farms, and coffee houses to dig into, from five-star experiences to local favorites. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash covers your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized, soft and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. For the third year, Olay Body is a proud sponsor of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride and supporter of the LGBTQ plus community. So this pride glow with confidence, not just all month, but all year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Hello, iHeart listener. We have a confession to make. Both iHeart and this commercial you're listening to right now would probably sound a heck of a lot better on the new Roku Pro Series TV. It's got side-firing speakers that fill your room with sound, Dolby Atmos audio that puts you right in the middle of the entertainment, and the ability to pair seamlessly with your home theater sound systems that already have surround sound and booming bass. If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better. Your TV is. 